If you guys have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 14. Before we do that, we're going to do a little bit of recap. A little bit of recap. Um, But first things first, as Renana told me, I'm not allowed to forget to pray. So <laughs> let's, let's pray. I've told you guys before, don't ever sit under anyone's teaching that you haven't prayed for because you don't know what's going to come out their mouth. So make sure you pray for me. I'm serious. You know me. Pray for me because I can still say some really stupid things. So <laughs> ask my wife. She'll tell you. <laughs> well, that went over like a herd of turtles. It just went. Anyway, hallelujah. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be in your house. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to share your word. Lord, we don't treasure your word the way that we should. It says that your word is to be valued above silver and gold, that it's more precious than rubies and precious metals. Lord, that it is to be desired above choice wine. Your word is the only thing that brings transformation. It's the only thing that brings life. It's the only thing that brings hope and peace and joy. And Lord, it's the only thing that we have to hold on to in an ever-changing and a topsy-turvy, whimsical world. We can hold on to the standard and the truth that your word possesses. Lord, that's an unshakable foundation that we can depend upon and build our life upon. So Lord, I'm asking right now that your word goes forth. Lord, that nothing leaves my mouth that isn't of you, that isn't from you, that hasn't went through you, that isn't bathed and saturated in your anointing. And Lord, I pray that every single word that I speak forth, you transform and change to an arrow and it pierces the heart of everyone that hears so that we might be impacted by the word of God this morning in Jesus name. Amen. Hallelujah. So Hebrews 1 9 is the basis for our series. I know I didn't tell you guys to turn there. I'm going to go over Hebrews 1 9 so much that by the end of this series, you're going to have it memorized. Say it with me now. I'm just kidding. Hebrews 1 9, thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. They put up the NIV on me. Hallelujah. Last week I did it backwards. I did the NIV. This week I'm doing the KJV. You just never know. You just never know. No, the reason that I wanted to share this with you, um, let's take a step back. I was, Renana was talking about Cahill. He's going to be ministering tonight in Dayton, Tennessee. And he ministered over at New Life this past Wednesday. Well, I had the wonderful opportunity to sit down and break bread with him yesterday, and we got to spend a couple hours just talking um, about the Word, which is amazing. Um, But I was telling him, he asked about what series we were doing, and I told him that we were doing the Oil of Gladness. And he looked at me, and he said, as somber and as sober as could be, he said, you know, the two fruits of the Spirit that are most absent in the church today is peace and joy, especially in ministers. And so then I got the opportunity to share with him my testimony about spending over 20 years in depression. And I've shared that testimony with you guys before, how I would be in depression and I would still go minister. That I called it my three-minute window, that I would be depressed, and then three minutes before I got up to preach, I was fine, the anointing would kick in, I'd preach God's Word. Three minutes after I was done preaching, the depression would come back. And I existed like that for well over a decade in ministry over five years pastoring, and nobody knew. And that was the thing that was so baffling to me is that I was operating in the spirit of depression, and discernment is supposed to be one of the gifts of the Spirit, and nobody could discern that I was dealing with depression. Nobody knew. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, we don't have the spiritual gifts the way that we should. Or two, it's so common that nobody feels the need to point it out. And either one's not good. 
But I began to realize, and especially after God broke my spirit of depression and gave me the baptism of joy, which is what I'm wanting to ex- everyone to experience, I began to realize that's not what God wants for us. God does not want us to lament and mourn our Christianity. He does not want us to walk through life miserable and broken and busted and depressed. Now people are like, well, are you saying God wants you happy? In a sense. Although I'm not talking about happiness, that's circumstantial, that's exterior. I'm talking about the joy of the Lord. He says, ask whatever you will in my name and I will give it to you that your joy may be made full. He says this, he says, in this you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. A joy that is so great, that is so marvelous that words can't even do it justice. That's what he wants for you. And I can give you plethora of scriptures. The joy of the Lord is your strength. God wants you to have joy. That doesn't mean you're not going to deal with difficulties. That doesn't mean you're not going to deal with trials. But he wants you to abide in a perpetual state of joy. To have an emotional stability that even if you get angry or if you get frustrated or you get sad, you immediately return back to joy. Joy becomes your default setting. Not anger, not sadness, not depression, not frustration, not uh, apathy. Joy becomes your default setting. Can you imagine what life would be like if you were always joyful and that even if something made you mad, five minutes later you were back to being joyful? That's what God wants for you. God wants you to have joy in Him. That's why gospel is so good. It's called good news. And I think some preachers have forgotten that. You know, a lot of times you hear somebody preach the gospel and they, all they preach is death, 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 suffering, anguish, anxiety, um, affliction, death, death, death. It's like, did you not realize that it's called the gospel? The good news? I've heard some people preach and I'm like, where's the good at? <laughs> Come on, you guys know what I'm talking about. Where's the good at? Like if all it is is I'm going to go through this life miserable and busted and I'm going to have to wait for one glad morning when this life is over, where's the good at in that? The gospel is supposed to be good news. It's supposed to be news that you can rejoice in, that you can take hold of and say, this is something I can build my life around on earth as it is in heaven. Not just in heaven one day way over the hill. Like No. <laughs> no. Never mind, I'm going to keep moving on before I get myself in trouble with that. So, if God wants us to be joyful, why are we not? I mean, that's a question we have to ask. If God wants us to have joy, why don't we have it? And as with anything in the Christian faith, it's because we don't know how to appropriate it into our life. God has it. God planned it. God wants it. Christ accomplished it. He paid for it. He purchased it. The Holy Spirit's ready to give it, to impute it, but we don't know how to partner with the the Holy Spirit and appropriate it to our life. And so this whole series, the purpose has been learning how to partner with the Holy Spirit and appropriate the joy of the Lord into our life. That's what the whole purpose has been. And so I shared with you Hebrews 1.9, and we got into a little bit of a grammar study, if you remember, that it's essentially divided into two halves, split by the word therefore. And the word therefore is a linking verb that connects the first half of the verse to the second. And basically what it does is it establishes conditions. The first half of the verse is the conditions. The second half of the first is the consequence for the conditions being met. So you love righteousness, you hated iniquity. 
therefore, or because you loved righteousness and hate iniquity, therefore God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. That is the consequence of the conditions being met. And then I, you guys remember, I said, I know people are going to say, well, this is a messianic prophecy. It's not for us. We dealt with all that. The simple point is this. There are conditions that God has set forth. And if those conditions are met, the consequence is being anointed with the oil of gladness above your fellows. But here's the problem. When we see conditions, we take it at face value and we create systems of legalism out of it. We do. We create rules and regulations. If you were to ask and take a poll and ask most Christians what Christianity was, most self-professed Christians, they would start giving you a system of rules and regulations. They would start giving you the imperatives, what to do, what not to do, rather than the indicatives, what has been done, what Christ did for you. Christianity is much more about what God has already done through the person and work of Christ Jesus than it is about what you have to do now. It is much more about what God has done than what you need to do. But we've gotten it backwards. So when we look at these conditions, the reason I made this into a series instead of a one-time message is I want you guys to get this. If I pastor here for 30 years and you don't get anything else, I want you to get this. That's a pretty big statement, isn't it? I want you to get this. Step one, righteousness. Righteousness. Step one. Step one is your identity. Your identity. If you take notes, write identity. All caps. Identity. We need to know who we are in Christ Jesus. We need to know that if we believe in Christ, if we believe that God raised Christ from the dead and then confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, then we are saved. If we do that, we call upon the name of the Lord, we are saved. Therefore, we are righteous by faith. I've told you guys this. People are not sinners because they sin. You guys remember that? People are not sinners because they sin. People sin because they are sinners. When God, through the Holy Spirit, transforms a heart, people are no longer sinners. They are righteous. You are not righteous because you do righteous things. You do righteous things after the Holy Spirit has transformed your heart and made you righteous. See, with the way that the gospel has been preached for a long time, hundreds of years, the way that it's been preached has been this. You're sinners. You sin, you're sinners because you sin. Now, I know you're sinners, but God did something on the cross. Now, even though you're a sinner, we need you to try to do some righteous things. And if you do enough righteous things, then you're going to be righteous. That is false. That is anti-Bible. It's impossible. You can't get an orange tree to produce apples. You can't get an apple tree to produce oranges. It doesn't work that way. Your identity has to be set straight. Do you know the quickest way to have anxiety spiritually? Build your foundation on works. That is the quickest way to ruin your Christianity, is to create a salvation or a plan of faith based on you. Because you will be up, down, up, down, up, down, all around. 
Yo, put your left foot in, put your left foot. <laughs> that that you guys that is exactly what'll happen. You'll be in, you'll be out. You'll be to the left, you'll be to the right. If you build your faith on works, you will be miserable and you will never walk in the joy of the Lord. You won't. Because the joy of the Lord carries the connotation of stability. And your works are never going to be stable. Not while it's built on a foundation of sand, which is essentially what you would be doing if you tried to build your works upon, or your faith upon your own works. You have to get your identity right. You have to know who you are in Christ. And you have to know that I am righteous, not because of what I do. I am righteous because I believe in Christ Jesus. And you don't maintain that then by works because that's another thing. People have said, well, now that you got saved by faith, you have to keep doing righteous things because the moment you sin, your salvation goes out the window. That is garbage. If your salvation is that easy to lose, it wasn't worth having to begin with. No, you are righteous because you believe and you stay righteous because you continue to believe. And if any man sin, we praise God that we have an advocate with the Father, even Christ Jesus, who sitteth at the right hand of the Father. Anyway, that's your identity. Step one. Step two. We talked about love and how the different tiers of affections and the four arcing affections and how that dictates your life, but more importantly, how it dictates your communication. Step two, communication. All caps, if you're taking notes, communication. What you say matters. What you say matters. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Abraham believed in God who spoke that which is not as though it already was. Therefore Abraham, against hope, believed in hope, confident that he would have the promise that God gave him. Paul says, I believe, therefore I have spoken. James says, out of the same mouth proceeds forth blessing and cursing. These things ought not to be. Can an olive tree bear figs or a fig tree bear olives? No. Then no mouth should be able to yield forth blessing and cursing. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your salvation is tethered to your confession, Romans 10, 9, and 10. All of these scriptures show that what you say actually matters. You are never going to have the joy of the Lord if you're one minute talking about how worthless you are. I'm never going to get anything right. My mind's failing. I just can't remember like I used to. I just can't seem to keep a dollar. I'll never be healed. I'm hopeless. I can't stop sinning. I can't quit that addiction. I mean, the list goes on. And then we're like, I wonder why I struggle so bad. It's like, good Lord, have you heard the things you say about yourself? You're giving yourself a complex. Never mind what other people say about you. You don't need anybody else to curse you. You're cursing yourself with your own mouth. What you say matters. There is so much power in the words that you have. Even as Lisa said when she was talking about the breath of God and then when she blows the shofar, she's blowing out the breath of God. When you speak, you're speaking and utilizing the air that God has given you. We talk about the inspiration of Scripture. You guys know what that means? Inspiration? Inspired. It means to receive breath. To receive something. 
And so when they talk about inspiration, they talk about the biblical authors received the breath and the Spirit of God and therefore were able to record what God had instructed them to record. There's something that we never talk about, and that's called the expiration of Scripture. And no, I don't mean the date on the back of the milk carton. (laughs) That's when the milk goes out of date. (laughs) I'm talking about when God breathed it out. Before they could breathe it in, God had to breathe it out. And every time you speak, you are expiring that same breath. What you say matters. Don't condemn yourself with your mouth. Don't curse yourself. Don't beat yourself down. Speak life over yourself. I'm not talking about denying reality. I'm talking about acknowledging reality and saying, yes, but this is sub-reality. And there is a greater reality, a spiritual reality that I'm going to speak in agreement with. I'm going to speak that which is not as though it already was. I'm going to hope against hope. I'm going to confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that God is going to do something. And it's not just about salvation of the Spirit, but it's salvation of the Spirit and the soul and the body. It says this, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. And if the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us, He shall also with that same Spirit quicken your mortal body. Salvation is for the whole man and the whole woman. All right, that was step two. We still doing okay? This is recap. I'm just laying an introduction, okay? (laughs) And then step three is repentance. This is what we did last week. And repentance. Because sometimes some stuff has to be removed. You guys know one of my heroes of the faith is Smith Wigglesworth. One of his biggest struggles, because he wasn't perfect, he wasn't Jesus, One of Smith Wigglesworth's biggest struggles revolved around kidney stones. And when you get a kidney stone, it is not of Jesus. And that junk has to be removed. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) you don't want it to stay. (laughs) It needs to get gone. It needs to be removed. And likewise, in your spiritual walk, there are things that come up like spiritual kidney stones that need to be removed. Because they're causing you a whole lot of pain. And God will bring those things to light. And He is so kind about, I never fail to be amazed at how gracious and how kind God is. That He doesn't just heap everything that's wrong with you on in one fell swoop. Because it'd kill you. But He'll bring something to light when you address that. He'll give you a recovery time and then He brings something else to light. All to mold you into the image of Christ Jesus all to bring you back to the Imago Dei, the image of God, all to make you into that perfect man. That is where God is taking you. And there's things that get in the way, these things of flesh that have to be removed. And sometimes the removing is uncomfortable. And so a lot of times what happens, like Romans 1, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness because these things that are brought to our mind that we're supposed to repent of, that we're supposed to see removed, that we're supposed to undergo a form of spiritual surgery, we don't like the pain or the discomfort that that might bring, however temporary, so we decide that we're going to neglect that and choose momentary comfort, fleeting satisfaction, instead of perpetual joy. And many of us, our obstacle to the baptism of joy or experiencing the fullness of joy that God has for us is an obstacle that we've created because we won't repent of the things that God has brought into our mind and our hearts to repent of. 
We suppress the truth. We ignore God. And instead, we decide we're going to put on a mask because we don't want anyone else to see what we're choosing to hold on to. That's repentance. So step one was identity. Step two was communication. Step three is repentance. You guys good? We're going to get into step four. Step four is sanctification. Sanctification. In the scripture, Hebrews 1.9, at the precipice when it goes from condition to consequence, it says this. It says, therefore God, even thy God. The NIV says, therefore God, your God. But do you see that progression? God even thy God, God, your God. Do you see that progression there? This is a progression of intimacy that is seen throughout Scripture. You know, believe me, First Peter talks about Jesus being the shepherd. John 10, Jesus talks about himself and identifies himself as the good shepherd. Hebrews 13, uh, the author of Hebrews identifies Jesus as the great shepherd. And in the Psalms, David says, now he's my shepherd. There's a progression of intimacy all throughout Scripture. And that's what we're seeing alluded to here. See, sanctification is something altogether different from repentance. Now, hear me correctly. Repentance portrays an aspect of sanctification, but not the whole bag. That's why I did them in two separate steps, because if I'd have put them together, you would have not heard anything else about sanctification because you'd have been like, no, I know what sanctification means. It means putting away bad stuff and getting good stuff. It's like, that's an aspect of sanctification. But if any of you have ever heard me preach or teach on sanctification, there's four different categories and there's eight different phases. There's a lot more to sanctification than just cutting off flesh. But for whatever reason, that's all we highlight on, is cutting off flesh. But there is an aspect of sanctification that is not just about what you're separating from, but about what you're separating to. And I always think about Asher when he was learning to walk. We had a house on Dayton Mountain not far from here. And our house was open floor plan, but there was this huge sectional that covered the whole living room. And literally, you could get anywhere in our house with your hand on the couch or on the wall. And Asher knew how to walk for a long time, but he kept his hand on the couch or on the wall. Like, I'm not going to (laughs) fall. And I would try and goad him to get off of that by standing just out of his reach. And he would have his hand on and he wanted to come to me, but he didn't want to take his hand off the couch or off the wall. And he had to make a choice. In order for him to come to me, he had to move away from the wall. Well, he always chose the wall. Or he would drop down the floor and crawl. I never did. The only time that we got him to finally do that was when he smelled food in the kitchen. And, and he, real, he was walking and didn't even realize until he would got over there and was holding. I think it was a cookie or something that Faith had gave him. And then he was like, oh, wait a second but he had to choose and see sanctification has the aspect of separating from sin absolutely but it carries the connotation of being separated to god there's a drawing of intimacy there's a progression there and in that progression there's a single portion that i want to highlight on today because i could talk about growing in intimacy with god and do like a fell broad fell swoop and cover the whole gamut but I don't want to preach for the next three hours. I'm sure you guys don't want to either. I'm sure you guys want to get lunch at some point in time today. Hallelujah. (laughs) So I want to highlight on one aspect, faith. Because your identity concerns what you believe, your communication concerns what you believe, and your repentance concerns what you believe. 
So I want to talk about progressing or growing in faith. Can we do that? Is that fine? All right. Now that we have done that, I mean, Hebrews 11 does tell us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that comes unto God must first believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So faith is important. I mean, we, Christianity is a faith, right? It's a system of faith. So let's, let's be a little bit more excited about talking about faith. So can we talk about faith? Everybody goes, woohoo, hallelujah, yay. Okay, praise God. <laughs> Matthew chapter 17, verse 14. I'm going to read out of the King James. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed. For oftentimes he falleth into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, If you have faith as of a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. We're going to also go to uh, Matthew thirteen thirty one. So if you guys want to get that ready, but we're going to talk about this for a second. So this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, mainly because I like it when Jesus acts like a thug. <laughs> I do. I like it when Jesus gets right with people. It's funny. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, all the pictures of Jesus, they picture him like some kind of like weak white woman. You know what I'm talking about. Look at those paintings of Jesus, the Anglo-Saxon. He looks like a 70s white woman. He's got the long, straight hair. He's got like the, the beads around his neck. I'm like, I don't know. I mean, he does. There's nothing masculine about that picture, those pictures of Jesus. And I'm like, Jesus was Middle Eastern, and he had, was a carpenter until he was around the age of 30. He was probably as buff as Mike McCabe over here. <laughs> <laughs> oh man you guys can laugh a little we're in church we ain't in prison <laughs> amen thank you jesus there, there's something to be thankful for hallelujah hallelujah so basically the story of this is guy has a son possessed by a demon and the demon will take hold of the boy and burn himself or try to drown himself and the father's freaking out. I mean, think about like a kid or somebody you love trying to kill themselves with fire and water. I mean, ouch. And so the guy finds the disciples of Jesus. And they had, by the way, they had already been sent out and they had already cast out demons. They had already healed the sick. That had already happened. And this guy brings his kid to the disciples and they fail. And so he comes to Jesus and he's like, look, and I can almost detect a little bit of haste in his tone. He's like, my son has been dealing with this for a long time, and I took him to your disciples who were supposed to be able to do the things that everybody's claiming that's being done, and they couldn't cast him out. And Jesus' response is, no problem, I got this. No. <laughs> he says, ah! <laughs> you faithless and perverse generation. How long do I have to put up with you? I wouldn't want Jesus saying that to me. <laughs> Faithless 
and perverse. And before you think, perverse in this sense does not mean anything to do with sensuality. Perverse actually just means twisted or crooked. What Jesus is doing is he's hitting their doctrine. So he's hitting their faith, faithless, and hitting their doctrine, twisted, crooked, out of whack. And you know, the thing that I love about the disciples is they don't do what we do. Picture, we have a healing service. And we start praying over everybody, anoint them with oil, and nobody gets healed. That's not going to happen in Jesus' name. Everybody's going to get healed. But say that that happened. What do we do? We say, well, it must not have been God's sovereign discretion. It must not have been their time to be healed. Or, well, you know, those gifts died out with the death of the apostles, and then you have what we call cascading theology, where it worked in smaller increments until the last of that generation passed away, and that was the implementation of the new covenant. So it had to be accompanied with miracles, but now that we have the new covenant and the Bible has been set forth, we no longer need those miracles. The devil is a liar. That's, I mean, that's a real thing. That's a real doctrine, a real belief system. Or we say, well, they didn't have enough faith. It wasn't my faith. They didn't have enough faith. We come up with excuses. We do. We come up with excuses. Anything to protect our ego. And you know what Jesus' answer is? They say, why couldn't we cast them out? Jesus says, because of your unbelief. Because you didn't believe. He doesn't say, well, it's because I'm God and you're not. I'm divine. I'm the God man. I can cast him out, but you can't. He doesn't say God had sovereignly set forth that I would cast this one out. He doesn't say any of that. He just says, because of your unbelief. And we will use every single tool at our disposal to try and explain this away. We complicate matters so much because we are so afraid of the truth that we just don't have faith anymore. I mean, I don't see any way around that. Jesus said, they say, why couldn't we cast them out? Because of your unbelief. A more literal translation would be because of your little faith. Like you got faith, but it's just a little bit. And then he goes on to say, well, if you had faith as a grain of a mustard seed, you could say unto this mountain, be thou removed. And there is a symbolic spiritual application to this, that it's Mount Sinai and the law, and there's, you can speak to that through faith and have that removed and cast out of the way so that you can walk in. And that's, that's all great. I love that. But really, the broad basic interpretation of this is Jesus is using what's called hyperbole. He is using an unrelated symbol or illustration to demonstrate his point. And it would be the equivalent of saying this. How many of you guys like try to open mason jars? I'm talking about your cooking. Look, we, we do flour. We put flour in mason jars because I'm convinced that they did a poll study and said, what is the worst possible vehicle that we could put flour in and sell it and market it? 
You guys know you get the paper bag of flour, and no matter how you open it, no matter what you do, it just gets flour everywhere. It's like they're like, oh, we want them to buy more flour, so we're going to make sure they spill half of it when they open the bag. So what we do is we open it, we spill a bunch, and then we put the rest in mason jars. And then you put the lid on. Well, the problem is, is at night, Arnold Schwarzenegger sneaks into your house and he like cranks the lid as tight as he can possibly crank it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> or Chuck, Chuck's saying he breaks into your house and cranks the lid as tight as he can possibly crank it. So that in your cooking and you're just like going along merrily, merrily, you know, life is but a dream. And then you go to open the jar and you can't get it open and you're like corking it and twisting it. And then you hand it to somebody and they open it and you're like, yeah, I loosened it up for you. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about, right? Like, I, this is not just a, a situation that is specific. We were watching MasterChef, and there's a little girl, and their family was watching. She couldn't get the jar open. She was, like, cranking. She hit it on the table. She hit it with a spoon. She was, like, trying to crank it open with a knife. And you know what she does? She stops everything. She takes off sprinting. Her dad is in the audience, and she hands the jar to him, and he opens it for her. <laughs> Smart girl. But the point is is that if Jesus, if I said to you, you said, why couldn't I get the jar open? And I said, because of your little strength. If you had strength as an ant, you could pick this church up and carry it to Chattanooga. That's the equivalent of what Jesus is doing. He's not saying you have faith like a mustard seed. He's saying you don't even have faith like a mustard seed. Because if you did, not only could you have cast this demon out, you could have said to a mountain. Because to be honest, nobody cares about a mountain where it's at. I have never once been thinking, man, I'd just love it if this mountain was 200 miles to the west. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a truck driver, so I'm sure truck drivers, when they're going up the mountain, like, man, I wish this thing wasn't here. But I have never once thought, man, life would be so much more convenient if there wasn't that mountain there. I've never looked at, like, Signal Mountain and said, man, I wish you weren't there. <laughs> That's not the point. The point is, is you don't have faith even the size of a mustard seed, which faith didn't wear a mustard seed earring. She lied to me and said she was going to, and she didn't. But <laughs> I think she just forgot because that was a couple of days ago. But a mustard seed is like tiny. It's the smallest little seed. It's like almost infinitesimal. And he says, you don't even have that much faith because if you did, you could do this and so much more. Hold that thought. Let's go over to Matthew thirteen thirty one. I'm gonna read a couple of scriptures, and then we we're gonna preach. Matthew thirteen thirty one. Hallelujah, Hallelujah. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a grain of a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Another parable he spoke unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, until the whole was leavened. All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them. Hallelujah. All right, first thing. Notice it starts off another parable. Another parable. It is connecting the parable that he's saying to the rest of the chapter. Right? 
it's kind of the equivalent if I'm up here preaching and I say three or four stories and you recount a story to someone and then you say, and he told another story and he told another story. You're, what you're doing is you're saying he told these stories in succession to illustrate the point that he was making. Right? That's what's happening in Matthew 13. He has all of these parables in succession and they're all working to illustrate the same point. They're all working to illustrate the same point. And the point is this. How many of you guys are familiar with the parable of the sower? Come on, that's like one of the most familiar parables in all of Scripture. Jesus says a man went out to sow and he sowed his seed and some of it fell on the wayside and some of it fell on the rocky ground and some of it fell on the thorny ground and some of it fell on good ground. And then he later, he says, and the seed that fell by the wayside, the birds came and they ate it up. The seed that fell on the rocky ground, it shot up really quickly, but it didn't have no root. So when the sun came out, it burned and scorched the plant and it died. And the seed that fell on the thorny ground, it grew up, but then the thorns choked it out and killed the plant. But the seed that fell on the good ground, it produced root and then produced a harvest, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. Amen. Hallelujah. I like, I like producing 30, 60 and 100 fold. But that's the foundation of the chapter. That's what takes up the, the large chunk of Matthew 13. And the parables that I just read to you are a continuation of that thought. When Jesus explains it, he says, the sower is the son of man. He goes out and he's sowing the word of God or the word of the kingdom. And the seed that falls by the wayside is like that that falls on a hard heart. And the bird is the devil that comes and steals the word before it has a chance to take root. That's the equivalent of me going out and trying to sow potatoes in, on the asphalt. Like, it just wouldn't work. It would be completely ridiculous. First of all, I don't know why I said potatoes, because they don't take seeds anyway, but whatever. <laughs> Squash seed or bean seed, I don't know. <laughs> bean seed, beans. How, Lord, help me. I'm going to get away from this. <laughs> but it'd be like the equivalent of trying to sow seed on an asphalt parking lot. It just wouldn't work. The wayside is the road. It's hardened. It's where people travel through. It's not for that. The seed that's the rocky ground, if you know a good farmer, what is the first thing that you do? You plow the field. You pull the rocks out. Then you put it into rows. And then you plant your seed. And then you hoe it out to keep the thorns and the briars from coming. And he says the the rocks prevent it from taking root. So the seed shoots up. And this is like those people that come to church and they say, hey, I gave my life to the Lord. And then they're on fire and they're zealous for like three or four weeks. And then next thing you know, they're no longer there. And you're like, wait, what happened? It's because they never really had it. They just had it in the soul. They had it in the body. It never really took root in their spirit and in their heart. So they never really went past a surface level relationship with Jesus. And then you've got the thorny ground, the cares of this world. Choke it out. And then you've got the good ground, which is the ground specifically prepared for the seed. Romans 10, 17 tells us this. It says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So here's the connection that Jesus is building. And you have to pay close attention because if you're not careful, you miss it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. I hear people all the time, I just can't believe. Well, how much do you read your word? I don't hear from God. Well, how much do you read your word? I'm serious. Reading your Bible is the easiest and the fastest way to build your faith. Read your Bible. Listen to audio Bible. Whatever. Just get the word of God in you. 
And quit with the translations. Get a translation that you can understand. I don't care if you can quote three quarters of the New Testament in the King James. If you don't understand a word of it, it's completely a waste. Like, get a translation that you understand. And get the Word of God in your heart. Because that's how you get faith. So now you've got the sower, and he's sowing the Word of God. He's also sowing faith. And that reminds me, Romans 12.3 says, God has given to everyone a measure of faith. Well, 2 Thessalonians 3.2 tells us that some men don't have faith. It's like, wait a second, God gave everyone a measure of faith, now some people don't have faith. That's because you have options. You can do one of two things. You get faith, you can cultivate and prepare your heart to receive it, and then guard it once you've got it, or you can let your heart be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, and that faith is being sown, and it's being given, and it's being given, and the Satan is killing it and taking it, the cares of this world are taking it, the rocks in your own heart, the things that you hold on to that won't let go of, won't let the Word take a root. So faith is becoming your enemy because of your own choice. So now let's, let's step back. Does that make sense? Are you guys still tracking with me? Okay, let's take a step back. The mustard seed. Did you guys notice that he carries the mustard seed over? See, when Jesus says that about the mustard seed, we all think about the little bitty seed, but it's not meant to stay little bitty. The mustard seed starts out that way when it's sown. Our responsibility is to prepare the ground for it to be sown into. Get your heart right so you can receive the Word of God. That's identity. That's communication. That's repentance. To receive the Word of God, that's maintaining it through your faith, cultivating your faith by your faith. And what happens is it grows up, and it says that it grows up into the greatest of all garden herbs so that it's almost like a tree, so that birds can lodge in it. And then the, the harvest from the, the sower, he says some, it produces some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. Everyone that's ever farmed anything, look, Doug was producing all kinds of plants, and he was bringing me tomatoes and squash and zucchini. Well, I don't even know what else. Zucchini, asparagus, brought me like a bundle of asparagus. <laughs> Anybody that grows anything... It never just blesses them. It blesses the people that they give it to. blesses the people they feed with it. It blesses the people they share it with. It blesses the people they sell it to. Whatever. It, when it produces a harvest, especially a hundredfold, it is meant to be shared. It becomes a source of sustenance and satisfaction to others. And then the mustard seed, when it's cultivated and it grows up and the birds nest and lodge in it, then it becomes a source of security and safety. It's always meant to be a blessing for other people. Your faith is necessary, not for yourself, but for yourself and for those around you because it becomes a blessing for others. Amen? All right. Now we're going to finish it up with the woman. I like this woman. <laughs> you know, this is the only place in Scripture where it talks about leaven in a good way. This is heaven's leaven. Heaven's leaven. Hallelujah. Right here, I think it's uh, verse 34. No, verse 33. Um, another parable he spake unto them the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened all right now here's the point of this i looked at this verse and i didn't realize that i read it in the niv and i almost ended up preaching this from the niv because of this but i read this verse in the niv and i was like wait a second why does king james say hid like it's talking about yeast or leaven 
And it says she hid it in three measures of meal. And I'm like, is there like a leaven thief running around? Like, hey, do you guys ever watch the, this was when I was a kid. When I was a real little kid, McDonald's had a cartoon. Ronald McDonald House, that was a cartoon. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? The Hamburglar, yes! I'm not the only weirdo. <laughs> I loved the Hamburglar. You know, it had like Ronald McDonald, it had Grimace, and then it had the Hamburglar. And the Hamburglar had like the jail white and black referee looking suit and the little fedora. Now, and he would always run in trying to steal hamburgers. That was his goal, and he always epically failed. And he had like the craziest wily coyote schemes to get the hamburgers. And so I picture like, is there like eleven thief like coming to steal her yeast so she's hiding it in the dough? No, that's not what's going on. <laughs> that was that was free, okay, guys. That was free. Uh, look, <laughs> look. The point is, as I began to process, why, what does this word actually communicate? And it communicates being worked into. So, faith, I told, I told you I was going to preach about you. And she's like giving me the big eyes. <laughs> faith likes to do stuff with sourdough. And she made like um, the, uh, what is it called? Um, that real thin... Um, no, the, uh, when you did the beef wellingtons. Puff pastry. Puff pastry. Yeah, phyllo dough puff pastry. She's throwing out words I've never heard before. But she, she, she'll make bread and stuff and dough. And when she does it, she's like working it in. And you see like the muscles flexing on the side, like her tricep. Like, like she's like working it in, looking all buff. And I'm like, wow, I'm not going to badmouth you again. <laughs> But no, she's like working it, and it's a workout, isn't it? Like anybody work with with dough often? Linda, I know you do. Like it's a workout, like sweating and like fury working that in. That's what it actually means. She's putting it in three measures, which actually equates out to like 60 pounds. 60 pounds of dough. She's like working it. That's a workout. But she's making sure that it saturates the whole thing. What it's communicating, if you take it in its context, is it's carrying the idea of faith in three measures. You are a spirit, you have a soul, you live in a body. It's carrying the idea of faith and saying that faith isn't meant to be received in your spirit and stay there. It's meant to be received in your spirit and then you work it in to your soul and you work it in to your body. That's a good word. That's a good word, because here's what happens. Here's what happens. We get faith in our spirit. I believe in Jesus. Yay. <laughs> if you wouldn't have laughed, I might have got away with that. <laughs> I believe in Jesus, and we leave it there. You know, they, the theologians talk about God, and they'll say that God is impossible. And that means no emotion. And I'm like, you're a liar. I'm serious. Theologians will say that they believe that God is impassable, meaning that he doesn't have emotions. He speaks to us in what's called anthropomorphism, which is like in the image of man. He speaks in those terms so that we understand what he's communicating, but he doesn't experience emotion. I'm like, you're a liar. Blaise Pascal, a famous theologian, he said, the God of the philosophers is not the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible is emotion. He is pure emotion. But here's the difference. We let our emotions control us. God's emotions never control Him. 
They're in perfect accordance with His will. They're in perfect accordance with righteousness and holiness. Ours are not. Somebody makes us mad. We just like want to put our head through a wall. Or like, <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about. Like you, you do crazy things when you get sad or you get mad or whatever. And you're like, why did I act like that? That's not who I am. Because your emotions just controlled you. And you weren't controlling your emotions. And when you talk about your soul, it's your mind, will, your intellect, your emotions, your imaginations, your conscience. All of that, you're taking that faith and you're working it in. And it says, well, I'm sad. I might be sad, but the joy of the Lord is my strength. And you take that and you work that into your emotions to bring them into uh, uh, submission to you. That's why David says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope thou in God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Like he's saying, no, you're not going to be this way. I'm going to work my faith into my soul until it penetrates and my emotions come into subjection or into alignment with my faith, not my faith being cast out the window because of my emotions i tell you guys all the time do not let your experience dictate your faith let your faith dictate your experience that is what we're talking about here and even in your body when you say no i'm sick i've been sick i'm going to stay sick no work that faith into your body keep believing abraham he was 99 and his body was operating accordingly <laughs> no he was 99 and he got his wife pregnant. And you know, here's the great thing about Abraham. Here's the, well, here's the great thing about God. See, God could have blessed Abraham and got Sarah her kid, and that been all said and done. But you know, after Sarah died, Abraham remarried and had a whole bunch more kids by his new wife. That's what faith can do when it gets worked into your body. I was listening to Cahill, and he used the example of Abraham being almost 100 years old and running down to the herd and picking up a calf and running back and handing the calf to a young man. Because that's what faith can do when it works into your body. Is it can change the dynamic of your body. It can change the dynamic of your soul, but we have to work it in. That's our responsibility. Partnering with the Holy Spirit and appropriating that faith into every facet and area of our life. Into every nook and cranny. I've never found out what a cranny is, but every nook and cranny. <laughs> That's why, you know, the, the moms, they'll be like, I want your room clean every nook and cranny. I'm like, well, I don't know what a cranny is, but if I find one, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> you work that faith into every area of your life. And when you do, that's when it produces a harvest that becomes a source of sustenance and satisfaction, becomes a tree that provides shelter, security, and safety for others. That's the purpose of faith. It's not just for you so you can have a great life. You are blessed so that you can be a blessing. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for an opportunity to preach your word. Lord, I pray right now that you bless us with an overwhelming spirit of faith that you would help us cultivate our faith so that nothing would be impossible. Lord, I think about that. How challenging of a verse is that? You literally say nothing, no thing is impossible if you believe. And Lord, I look at things and I see a lot of things that seem impossible. 
Lord, I wish that that wasn't the case. I wished every time an obstacle arose, I saw an opportunity to demonstrate the power of God through faith. Lord, I'm praying that that mind shift, that reorienting of our mind and our thought process would occur in this church, that we would believe and that we would hope against hope that your promises would be fulfilled in our day and in our life. Lord, help us work that faith into our spirit. Help us work it into our soul and help us work it into our body and let it produce a harvest in us, some 30, some 60, and some 100-fold. In Jesus' name, amen.